The text this morning is from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. These are the words of God. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace, that unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Our gracious God and Father, I pray you'd be with us now. We've gathered around your word. We are trusting that we are gathered in your spirit. I pray that you would teach and instruct us here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In just a chapter before, at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 3, we are told that Jesus Christ is the apostle and high priest of our confession. Jesus is the apostle and high priest of our confession. As an apostle sent from the Father, he represents God to us. An apostle is a sent one, and what kind of apostle it is has to be determined by who it is that sends. So, when Jesus sends his disciples, they are, the, they are apostles of Christ. They are sent by Christ. If Paul and Barnabas are sent out by the church in Antioch, they are apostles of the church at Antioch, and they have the authority of the sending body. And of course, uh, Paul is an apostle of Christ and an apostle of the church in Antioch. Jesus is not one of the 12 apostles, but he's called an apostle. He's an apostle because he's sent by God. God sends Christ into the world, as we are told uh, numerous times in the Gospel of John. So as an apostle sent from the Father, he has the authority of the Father. He is commissioned by the Father, and he's commissioned by the Father to represent God to man. He's he commissioned by the, by the Father to represent uh, the Father to us. As a high priest designated to come before God on our behalf, he represents us to God. So when it says in Hebrews 3 that he is the apostle and high priest, what this means is that he represents in both directions. He represents God to man. He's an apostle. He represents man to God. He is our high priest. Consequently, the bridge between God and man, which is what we've been talking about in this series of messages on the definition of Chalcedon, as the bridge between God and man, we have to understand that this is a bridge that can be traveled in both directions. It's not a one-way bridge. It's a two-way bridge. God reaches man across that bridge, and man reaches God across that bridge. From God to man, and from man to God, apostle and high priest. But in order to be the high priest, he also had to serve the sacrifice. He had to serve as the sacrifice, and this meant that he had to be a spotless sacrifice. And as one who was worthy to offer that spotless sacrifice, he had to be a spotless high priest as well. And this is addressed by the author of Hebrews in this passage here in Hebrews 4. So because Christ was given to us, we have a great high priest. Because he was given to us, we have a great high priest. Because he is our high priest, he faces away from us in order to represent us in the heavens. He faces away from us in order to represent us. In the heavens, he sprinkles his own blood on the altar. He is the sacrifice, and he is the sacrificing priest. He is the sacrifice offered, and he is the agent, the, the one who does the offering. 
He is the priest, and he is the sacrifice that the priest offers up. So he sprinkles his own blood on the altar, which we see in Hebrews 9, 12. And in the heavens, he also intercedes for you. We see that in Romans 8, 34. He prays for you by name. So as your great high priest, he prays for you by face and by name. He intercedes constantly for you. This is what a priest does. A priest offers a sacrifice on your behalf, and a priest intercedes for you on your behalf. Now, we are instructed in this passage to hold fast our profession precisely because we have a high priest in the heavens. And this high priest knows exactly what it is like down here. This high priest knows what it's like to be one of us because he is one of us. The, the original word here is sympatheo. Uh, we obviously get the word sympathy from it, sympathetic, uh, all those related words. The original word is sympatheo. We have a high priest who is sympathetic with us in our infirmities. The things that you do that irritate everybody else, he's sympathetic with you in those infirmities. Those frailties, those infirmities, those faults, those blind spots, he is your high priest and he sympathizes with you in those frailties. That doesn't make the frailties okay. That doesn't make them good and healthy. But that means that you have a high priest who sympathizes with you in those infirmities. Now, he does this because he was tempted in all the same basic areas where we are tempted. He was tempted in all the same basic areas where we are tempted. And yet, he was tempted without sinning. He was tempted and yet never sinned. This excludes, I think this excludes naturally and uh, necessarily those temptations that had prerequisites. Some sins, like deep perversions, have sinful prerequisites. There are some sins you can't be tempted to do without 30 years of hard-heartedness beforehand. If you've d dedicated yourself to a life of mayhem and crime and perversion, after 30 years of that, you're going to be tempted to certain things at the end of the road. I don't believe that Jesus was tempted by any end-of-the-road sins, but he was tempted in all the same basic human avenues of human life that we are tempted in. Now, his ability to sympathize with us is not despite his perfection, but rather is the result of his perfection. He does not sympathize with us um, because uh, he somehow shares the weakness. He is strong, he overcame temptation, and his overcoming of temptation is what equips him to sympathize truly. There'll be more on that shortly. This throne, we're told in uh, verse 16, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. His throne is a throne of grace, not a throne of recrimination or accusation. It is not a throne of condemnation. He is holy. He is altogether holy. It could have been a throne of condemnation. The unholy could come into his presence and receive condemnation there. He is holy. We are unholy. It could have been a throne of accusation, but it is not. We're told that it's a throne of grace. We are told it's a throne of grace. So we are told that when we are in need of grace, which is unmerited favor, or mercy, which is demerited favor, or, as is frequently the case in our lives, both, we need both grace and mercy, 
You are supposed to come to his throne, how? Well, boldly, it says. You're supposed to come boldly. When you have forfeited his kindness, you are to come and ask for it boldly. When you have not deserved his kindness in any way, shape, or form, how are you supposed to ask for it? Boldly. So, his, And this is because it's a throne of grace. Grace rules. Grace reigns. Grace is sovereign. So his throne is a throne of grace. It's not a throne of accusation. It's a throne of grace. And when you need his unmerited favor, you did not earn it or deserve it, you are to come and ask for it boldly. And when you have forfeited it, when you have sinned it away, when you have demerited his favor, you're supposed to come and ask for it anyway, boldly. You're supposed to come to the throne boldly. Now, all of this is reflected wonderfully in the definition of Chalcedon, which we just recited, which says that Christ, echoing Hebrews here, it says that Christ was like us in all respects apart from sin. He was like us in all respects apart from sin. It goes so far as to say, as regarding his manhood, he's of one substance with us. He's of one substance with us. He's of one substance with God as regards his Godhead. He is, his godhood, he is of one substance with us as regards his manhood. Now, having gotten that square, we, we've not gotten our minds around it completely. Remember, I've, I've exhorted you not to try to do the math, but we've, we have the definitions down. We know Jesus of Nazareth is one person, and we know that he has two natures, and those two natures are not partial. Those two natures are complete. He is completely God, and he's completely man, and these two natures are linked together in what's called the hypostatic union, the personal union. These two natures come together, and in those, the, the point of union is the person, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, this one person, Jesus of Nazareth, is like us in all respects, in every respect, except for the sin, except for sin. Now, this causes questions. This brings, this, this, questions arise. Some people, are, is, is it possible for someone like that? Is it possible for the God-man? Is it possible for someone who's fully God and fully man, united in the personal union, Jesus of Nazareth, to actually truly be tempted? We know, we know that uh, the Bible says God cannot be tempted. God uh, doesn't tempt anyone, and he himself cannot be tempted. In his divine nature, he is not tempted. But Jesus of Nazareth was tempted. Some people are prone to rely on their own wits instead of the plain uh, instruction of Scripture, and so they reason something like this. Well, if it was not possible for Christ to sin, then in what way was his temptation a true temptation? We know that our temptations are true temptations because they are followed frequently by true sins. It was a true temptation to really sin because I really sinned. I fell into sin, and the temptation that led me to that sin must have been a real temptation because it sure wound up in a real sin. So if Christ could never go there, if Christ couldn't ever get to that end result of sin, in what respect, in what way was it a genuine temptation? Wasn't it just Jesus going through the motions? No, it was not just going through the motions. The Bible tells us that he was tempted. He was led by the Spirit, going in the wilderness, to be tempted by the devil. 
So it was a true temptation. It was a real temptation. It's described for us as a real temptation. But we want to make our philosophical reasoning senior to what the Bible says. And well, how could it be a true temptation if it was not possible for him to sin? Because we share some of the frailties of this objector. This kind of thing sometimes makes sense to us. Yeah, how could it, how could it be a real temptation? How could Jesus have really lived a human life Wasn't he just down here looking like he was living a human life? Wasn't he just an apparition? Wasn't he just going through the motions? No, it was a true human life. He had a birthday. He lived a certain length of time. As I said before, he walked along the road to get there. He was buffeted by by temptation. And it was a genuine human experience. But how, how could it have been? That's the question. Let me answer that with another illustration. Were Christ's bones breakable? Were Christ's bones breakable? The answer to that question is both yes and no. It's both yes and no. They were breakable in that they were made of the same breakable substance as our bones are. His bones were not any stronger than our bones. His bones are breakable. Our bones are breakable. His bones were not unbreakable. They were not made out of titanium. Right? So his bones were, had shared the same nature that our bones have. But because Scripture cannot be broken, Scripture is unbreakable. His bones were breakable, but Scripture is unbreakable. John 10, 35 says Scripture cannot be broken. Scripture cannot be broken. Because the Word of God is unbreakable, His bones were not going to be broken. His bones were not going to be broken because the Word of God is not breakable. We see that in Exodus 12, 46. We see it in Numbers 9, 12. We see it in Psalm 34, 20. We see it in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, and in John 19, 36. Christ's bones were not going to be broken because the word of God had to be fulfilled. His bones were not going to be broken because the word of God had to be fulfilled. So in the same way, it's, this is an analogy that works almost straight across. In the same way, Christ's human nature was peccable. That means it was capable of sin. His human nature was like ours, like Adam's nature, capable of sin. When Adam was created, it was not sinful. He was not sinful, but he was created in a way that was capable of sin. He, He had the capacity to sin in his nature. Christ's human nature was peccable, capable of sin. However, this was not a gamble on God's part because God's word cannot be broken. The promises of God concerning him were impeccable, which meant that God's word was going to be fulfilled in Christ and that Christ would see the desire of his soul and be satisfied. We're told that in Isaiah 53, 11. So 700 years before the Messiah walked this earth, 700 years before Jesus went through his first temptation, Isaiah prophesied that on the other side of that temptation, he would still be upright he would look at the desire of his soul and be satisfied. The word of God and Isaiah's word cannot be broken. This was going to happen. Christ was going to be victorious. He was going to come through the the temptation uh, intact. The Christ would prevail through all of his temptations and trials, and he would praise his father in the great congregation, Psalm 22, 25. That was said a thousand years before the first temptation. It could not happen otherwise, but not because his nature was any different. It wasn't like he was Superman. It wasn't like his bones couldn't be broken because he was Superman or he couldn't be affected by temptation because he was Superman. No, he felt temptation 
the, the same way you or I do. I think only more intensely, and that, that leads to the next point. We might say, well, how could it be a true temptation if he couldn't fall? Well, it could be a true temptation because the Bible says it was a true temptation, and this helps us understand how that could be. Well, what about this sympathy? How can Jesus, how, how can Jesus be truly sympathetic? When you're struggling with the sin that you did again, you know, you're the thing you did again, um, you generally don't like to go talk to perfect people about it, right? Because your perfect roommate or your perfect family member or your perfect, you don't like to talk to them about it because generally when we are perfect, or think we are, when we are perfect, we look down on people who are imperfect. That's our imperfection, right? That, that's, our imp- that's part of our imperfection. That's part of our problem. So, Christ's strength, Christ withstanding this temptation, makes him more equipped to be your high priest, not less equipped. So we can only come before this throne of grace boldly if we are sure of our reception. And if we are also sure that the one who receives us warmly is actually capable of helping us. It says in Hebrews eleven six, but without faith, it is impossible to please him For he that cometh to God, that's what we're talking about, is coming to God. He that cometh to God must believe that he is, so you must believe that he's there, and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So, he that comes to God must believe that he is, and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. We must believe that God is there, and we must also believe that he is both willing and able to help us. So, He's there, and he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And if he's a rewarder of those who seek him, then he's willing to reward, and he's able to reward. He can't be a rewarder otherwise. So, Matthew 8, 2 says, And behold, there came a leper and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. Lord, if you want to do this, you can do it. Lord, if you want me to not be a leper anymore, I cannot be a leper anymore. If you want to. If you want to. And Christ said, yes, he wanted to. And he healed the leper. So the leper came to someone he believed was there. And he came to someone that he believed could help him and would help him if he wanted to. And Christ said, yes. So God is able to help you. And God is willing to help you. God is able to help you. And he is willing to help you. But he's not willing to put us in charge of what constitutes help. In other words... How many times have you prayed for deliverance and you got the deliverance, but not on the timetable that you were looking for? We want, we want it now. You've heard the old joke. I'm, I keep praying for patience. Lord, I need patience and I need it now. <laughs> I want patience now. Well, God says, no, it's going to take another three months at the rate you're going. You're, at the rate you, you, need, you have some things that you need to learn. So we want help. We, we come to the one, we come boldly to the throne of grace wanting help from the throne of grace and God is willing to provide that help and he does provide that help but he doesn't do it we don't whistle him up we don't make him do things we don't manipulate we can't manipulate him but we must come to him believing that he's there and come to him knowing that he's the rewarder of those that diligently seek him so he doesn't put us in charge of what constitutes help or what constitutes timely help but he does help he does deliver. He does, inter- he does intervene. He does undertake on behalf of his people. He does answer prayer. 
Now, suppose that temptation is the wind and that sinning consists of blowing right over. When you blow over, that's when you sinned, and temptation is the wind. Suppose also that all of us were, uh, all of us were assigned the task of walking 10 miles in winds that were up to 100 miles an hour. You had to walk 10 miles in hurricane force winds. To make this an illustration with nice round numbers, suppose that 100 of us were told to walk this distance in the wind. 90 of us blew over the moment we stepped outside, right away. And, and the reason we didn't clog up at the door is we blew down the sidewalk a little bit. All of us stepped outside. 90 of us stepped outside. Then nine of us walked an entire three yards and then blew over. Those nine who walked the three yards are great heroes of the faith, and we write biographies about them. <laughs> they are the ones who really have it together. They walked through three yards. And one of us, Jesus, walked the entire distance. Jesus walked the entire way. Nine of us blew over after three yards. The rest of us blew over right away. Now, which of the 100 can be considered a wind expert? Which one of the 100 knows the most about wind? Well, the Lord Jesus knows the most about sin. He knows the most about temptation. He knows the most about all of this. What this means is that Jesus Christ, your high priest, understands you better than you do. He understands your temptations better than you understand them. He understands your sins better than you understand them. He understands you and you do not. The reason you do not is, is that's how you get your shirt pulled over your head. That's how you get your socks rolled down. That's how you get into trouble. You don't know what's going on. He knows what's going on. He understands it perfectly. And moreover, he doesn't look at you and despise you because of his understanding. Because his strength is not like our strength. When we are strong, when we're stronger than someone else, we tend to look down at and sneer at those that are, who are weaker than we are. But Jesus is truly strong. It's a divine strength, and he doesn't despise the weak. He came into the world for the weak. He came into the world for the infirm. He came into the, into the world to heal those with these diseases. And he, he's the doctor. He knows more about the disease than you the patient, no. So when you sympathize with the fellow right next to you, the fellow who blew over the same moment you did, your sympathy is weak and pathetic compared to the true sympathy that Christ has for you and for him, your companion. His sympathy is the stronger for his strength. His sympathy is stronger because of his perfection. His perfection is not a defect. The fact that he resisted temptation in places where you do not resist temptation doesn't make him ignorant. The fact that you blew over when you're lying there out of the wind on the ground, you're, that doesn't make you a wind expert. That, doesn't, that makes you a falling over expert, but, it, but that, even that is shrouded in ignorance. So Christ is truly sympathetic, and his, his uh, sympathy is extended in all wisdom. His sympathy is stronger for his, his strength, on account of his strength. His strength does not render him a weak high priest. How could his, how could his strength render him a weak high priest? How could, it, couldn't, it can't do that. But we sometimes want to assume that true accountability can only be found, true help can only be found with someone who has all the same problems 
we do. So we hunt, we hunt people out to, for accountability groups, like a group of young men with a porn problem, forming an accountability group, drowning swimmers clutching at one another, Get, getting the other weekly to say, yeah, I messed up this week. Yeah, me too, me too, me too. Down they all go. That's not, that's not accountability. You, you can't, um, pooled ignorance is not wisdom. <laughs> that's, not, that's not where it comes from. You need someone wiser than you. You need someone stronger than you. You need someone holier than you. And you need someone who likes you. And there's only one of those in the universe. <laughs> there's only one. <clears throat> Has it come to that? Yes, it's come to that. So, this is, the, this is the meaning of Chalcedon. This is perfect man, perfect man, fully God, one person, Jesus of Nazareth, and he is the one who is your high priest. He's the one. Now, we've considered the person and work of Christ. The person of Christ was the result of the great miracle that was wrought by the Holy Spirit nine months prior to Bethlehem. So nine months prior to Bethlehem, when the Holy Spirit came on Mary... Luke 1.35, the, the child that was conceived in her womb was the, the miracle. That was the incarnate God. That single cell was fully, was, was the, the Lord Jesus, and all of, all of his godhood and all of his manhood were encompassed in that single point, that single cell. And because he was the complete and perfect man, he grew up to be the complete and perfect man, he also perfectly fulfilled the calling of his various offices, prophet, priest, and king. Only a perfect man can be a perfect prophet. Deuteronomy 18.15. Only a perfect man can fulfill the role of a perfect prophet. Only a perfect man can be a perfect high priest. Hebrews 4.14-16, which is our text. Only a perfect man can be a perfect king. That's Revelation 19, 16. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. Now, precisely because Christ has entered into his inheritance, it is possible for us to enter into ours. Because all that he has and is belongs to us by grace. This is why you can come into the, before the throne of grace with boldness. It's all ours. In 2 Corinthians 1.20, it says this, For all the promises of God in him are yea, and in him, amen, unto the glory of God by us. It doesn't say some of the promises. It doesn't say the occasional promise. It says all of the promises of God, from Genesis to Malachi, all of the promises of God in him for you are yes. All of the promises of God for you, by name, by face, are yes. All of the promises of God in him for you are amen. All of them. Now, the righteousness of the sinless one has been imputed to us. And so it is that we are declared righteous. That is your justification. That is your justification. All of the, uh, God made him who knew no sin, 2 Corinthians 5.20, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So, the righteousness of Jesus Christ is imputed to you. That means that when you pray in Jesus' name and God looks to you, God looks down on you praying, what does he see? He sees perfection. 
he sees a perfect saint praying to him in Jesus' name. Because you are accepted in the beloved and for no other reason. That's why you're accepted. That's why your prayers are heard at all. When you say, in Jesus' name, amen, it's not the signal to open your eyes at the end of the prayer. In Jesus' name, amen, says, in effect, God, without this, without this perfect one, without this righteous high priest, I have no right to come into your presence at all. And yet, I come into your presence boldly because I come in him. And because you come in him, God looks at you in him. And when he looks at you, he sees you perfect. You are perfect. And that means that not one person in here needs to have his justification improved upon. You cannot improve upon it. It is complete. It is total. It is entire. It is as righteous as Jesus Christ himself is. And you might say, but that, that you know, I struggle with sin. I, I struggle with sin. I've got, we, we come and worship God and we confess our sins. We're exhorted that we're, we hear sermons on various sins and we're exhorted with regard to various temptations and we kneel and we kneel down at the beginning of the service and confess our sins so how is it that a bunch of perfect people come in and kneel and confess their sins this this is the thing that you have to grasp that is the daily struggle against sin the daily struggle against temptation that everyone here goes through has to be located within the context of justification Otherwise, your sanctification is just going to be you clambering onto that little squirrel cage run and running, run, 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 run. I got to be a better, got to be better, got to be better, got to be better, and you never are. You never, ever are. You cannot get better unless you are free, and you cannot be free unless you are forgiven, and you can't be forgiven unless the forgiveness is total. It's got to be total and complete forgiveness. And that's where sanctification happens. That's where actual progress in practical day-to-day holiness happens. That's how it happens. Now, we, t- we tend to think the carnal man wants to say, well, can't I game this? Uh, can't, like Paul is answering in Romans 6, shall we sin that grace may abound? If I'm perfect, then it doesn't matter. If I, I can go look at porn, I can go steal things, I can go be envious, I can snark at other people, I can, I can sin up a storm if I'm perfect. And Paul says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Because if you get a hold of your justification, that's simply another way of saying that an understanding of justification got a hold of you. Jesus Christ is perfect. And that perfection is imputed to you. And when it's imputed to you and you receive it by faith, you are set free to pursue holiness. Because if you are trying to pursue holiness without that freedom... What's happening? You're trying to work your way into God's good graces, and there's no way to go into before the throne of grace with boldness when you're trying to be a good little boy. When you're trying to be a good little girl, you can't do it. That's the, you're just going to frustrate everybody around you, and you're certainly it's, it's not the gospel. So the, the gospel is this. You, in Christ, you are perfect. In Christ, you are forgiven. In Christ, you are cleansed. All your sins, all of them, past the ones that are going on now and future, all of your sins, past, present, and future, are cleansed, forgiven, washed away, and you are declared righteous. And from that position of having been set free, you can pursue 
being better tomorrow in your sanctification. But sanctification has to be located well within the doctrine of justification. Otherwise, it turns into works righteousness. It turns into something else. It turns into something that's legalistically toxic. So, the righteousness of the sinless one has been imputed to us, and so it is that we are righteous. And when we stumble and fall, the prayers of intercession on our behalf are offered up by a sinless high priest. You all have different problems, right? Some of you are irascible. Some of you are lustful. Some of you are greedy. Some of you are short-tempered. Some of you have got all kinds of problems here. And you've got a high priest who sympathizes with you in those infirmities. Now, that doesn't, he's, he's not giving you a little stamp of approval. Now, he sympathizes with you in those infirmities the way a doctor sympathizes with you in the cancer that he's going to remove. All right? And he's going to remove that cancer in the process of sanctification, but he's going to do it within the broad context of heart already having declared you forgiven, not guilty. Romans 8, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the word that's spoken over you. No condemnation, no condemnation, no condemnation. Now, get up, walk, rise up, take up your bed, and walk. So it is that we cannot be anything but accepted in the beloved. Our priest prays for us. Our priest intercedes for for us. Our priest has died for us. And therefore, that's good news. That's 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 the whole point. This is gospel, the gospel in a nutshell. Our Father, gracious God, we thank you for the kindness that you've shown to us in this gospel. We thank you for what you have done for us in and through it. Father, as we seek to get our minds around it, as we seek to understand this uh, at at a deeper level, I pray that you would equip us and help us. Father, we pray now using the words that Jesus taught us to pray, saying, It isn't just a happy accident that Christ was born in a town named Bethlehem, which means house of bread. If a movie studio got this script, they'd likely pass on it for being too on the nose. They might offer constructive criticism to the aspiring screenwriter. You've got talent, kid. Just learn to be more subtle. But this story, told by the supreme storyteller, simultaneously confounds the wise while being gloriously clear for even the most simple amongst us. Our father Adam's sin was eating from the tree he was forbidden to eat from. As a result, God cut us off from the tree of life. And from then on, mankind hungered for life. But no matter where he looked or how hard he labored, this bread of life eluded him. The high points of the Old Testament all resemble each other in that God comes down to some undeserving but chosen servant to renew a covenant of grace. These moments are always punctuated by some covenant meal. Noah offers up a sacrifice after the flood. Abraham witnesses the glory of God pass through the parted meat of the covenantal sacrifice. Moses leads Israel to partake of a Passover meal on the eve of their exodus. And during their wilderness wanderings, God sent down bread from heaven. Indeed, this thread of God calling out to mankind through these covenant renewals with his chosen saints and then feeding them in a covenantal meal is one of the main threads of Scripture. It shouldn't shock us, then, that God, in bringing about the salvation for all the world, selects this little town of Bethlehem, the bread house, in which to place the bread of life. He even went so far as to ensure that the virgin placed the Christ child 
in a feeding trough. The point is unmistakable. You are empty. He came to fill you up. You are hungry. He came to feed you. The bread of life has come down. And so come in faith and welcome to Jesus Christ. The charge is this. In a very real sense, your sanctification consists of getting used to your justification. Uh, It's not just that. It's got to be done in faith. You've got to intelligently grasp what's going on with your justification. But as God has declared you righteous, and you are getting your mind and heart and life around that, sanctification consists of, by faith, grasping what God has offered you in your justification, which is everything. God offers you everything in your declared, imputed righteousness, and you receive that, and then your sanctification functions safely within those walls and nowhere else. So, with believing hearts, receive the benediction of your God. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Amen.